Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to Pavel Mojar, director of the short documentary Handbook. This interview is one in a series that we're doing with next-gen filmmakers, the next generation of documentary filmmakers. And these interviews are part of a partnership we're doing with the Palm Springs International Short Fest, which takes place from June 21st through the 27th in Palm Springs, California at the Camelot Theaters. Handbook, a Belarusian-German production, is one of a series of films in a program called A Dose of Reality, which plays Saturday, June 25th at 10 a.m. at the Camelot Theater. Handbook had its world premiere in 2021 at the Doc Leipzig Film Festival and then went on to win the IDFA Award for Best Short Documentary at the International Documentary Film Festival, Amsterdam. The screening in Palm Springs is the film's North American premiere. Without saying too much, the film takes a very inventive approach to recent political events and police suppression in Belarus, which is the director's home country. He now lives in Berlin, where he goes to film school. I found the filmmaker's creative approach to be truly fascinating, and I really learned a lot more about that process from speaking to Pavel. And now, coming up, my conversation with Pavel Mojar, the director of Handbook. Pavel Mojar, welcome to Top Docs. Hello, Juan Jakobson. Thank you. Pavel, can you give us a brief logline of your film? Yes. In the room of the director in Berlin, there is a reenactment of what happened to people in Belarus in August 2020. Let's put it this way. Your film opens with a series of shots of what could be any small, tastefully furnished studio apartment in any city in the world, I'd say. Then in narration, you say, this is my room in Berlin, Nukon, five and a half meters by four, followed by in early August, 2020, I sit here in front of my monitor and watch the news unfold from my home country of Belarus. You show us some of those images on the monitor in this room. You say that following the announcement of Alexander Lukashenko as the winner of the presidential elections, protests broke out. Hundreds are arrested, and many of them have talked about their experiences. You say, as I read their reports, I see a system emerging. We then see several more shots of the apartment, and then cut to black in the title card, Handbuch, which is handbook in English. This is a great opening for many reasons. For one reason, it sets up you as the narrator, someone who is mostly passive here, but also in control of this narrative and these images. We think we're possibly going to see a film about the events in Belarus, but we're here in this apartment in Berlin, far away from the action. How are we going to bridge this space is something that occurs to us in the audience. Can you talk about constructing this opening and how you wanted to engage the audience and set up what comes next? That's a good question, actually, because it came to me so naturally, this and so intuitively, this idea of introducing my room, because when it happened, just what I say in this introduction, right? Like here I am sitting in this room in August 2020, reading the news from Belarus, and it happened exactly this way. I was on computer on my smartphone in the apartment. The election was on the 9th of August. It was Sunday. I went to the Russian embassy voted and then I met some friends. One of them was Russian. And then we started to watch this news about the protests. And I was already like going crazy because there you see all these explosions and demonstrations and everything. So I stayed up the whole night on Monday 
like again and then tuesday got the first messages from like friends or friends of my parents or of anyone or like telegram videos from this violent acts of beating up people in the streets like some people filmed through their windows which were facing the prison courtyard how people were treated and then you are going crazy there because you see all this all those pictures you can do anything but you are like in the real outrage and the real, I don't know, parallel universe, because somehow I'm in Germany, I'm in Berlin, but also I'm not, you know? And then, so I spent, I don't know, three days in this room or something like watching it all, talking to my parents, talking to friends and everything. Then I went to demonstrations in, in Berlin because the Belarusian people, but also Russian people who live in Berlin went in the streets with demonstration. We were not many, but like 100, 200 people maybe. Also, it was pretty crazy to walk on the street in Berlin because it's summer, people are sitting there in cafes and in bars, and then, you know, a police van drive by and six policemen are walking out and getting some pizza from the store and going back in again, and nobody moves, you know, nobody's scared of them. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> what's happening? Like, why is nobody running away while I have these images from Belarus? That was the first shock. But then there were some human rights organizations like spring 96 so only one belarusian human rights organization who worked from poland and then some other also organizations who said we have to document what happened in the three days with people because it's it's really unreal it's a crime against people and we have to document it so they started documenting it and i started to read this protocols of what happened to people really dry protocols what happened to them from like in these different stations and then while i was reading it for example people were saying okay we were in a room like four by five meters and we were 50 people there and i sat there in the room reading it and i looked around myself and uh, tried to imagine what it would be like four by five meters or four by four meters and i actually measured my room to, to understand how big this is for 50 people and i realized okay so people like in a cell like my room they were like 50 to 80 men or women and there i had a first feeling okay maybe i should shoot this film here in my room at the same time i was saying like okay pavel this could be an armature idea because maybe you cannot light here very good and the camera movements and everything and it's a room it's maybe better to do it in a studio and then i talked to our dop jonas and i told him this idea and i said okay please don't scream at me if you want to do it in a studio we'll do it in a studio you know <laughs> but then he said, listen, I think it's a great idea because if we do it in a studio, we'll try to do like some Dogwell style movie. But if we would do it in your room, it's much more personal approach. Let's try it there. We moved all the furniture out just to see if we have enough space for the camera, you know, for tested different lenses and everything. Talked about where to put the lights on, how to do the lights in the room, how to deal with the window. And as it was clear that my room will be our stage. From that moment on, it was really easy. I wrote this text down, I don't know, like in, in one hour. So, okay, I just tell how it happened. So what I'm telling you now. So. so following the title, we see a man being helped putting on a black hood or a balaclava over his head. And for the next 20 minutes or so, basically the entire rest of the movie, we're going to be in this room, your room, 
stripped completely of all the furniture. It looks like the floors painted blue. And what's depicted here and described on the soundtrack are the acts that the special police who rounded up and tortured the protesters and others forced people to perform and endure. So effectively, your safe, warm apartment in Berlin has been transformed into this room where torture has taken place. Why did you want to depict these acts of torture here in your apartment? Again, coming to the previous answer, the first idea was to do it in a studio, you know, like in, in a black studio, because it's more professional. You have better lights, options, you have more space for the camera movements and everything. You are not so limited in productional reasons. But we are really glad that we shot this film in my room because I think a studio could be pretty dangerous for a film like that because you have a lot of lightning options, because you have a lot of camera movement options. And this is the first aspect. The second aspect is that it was important for me that this film is actually not only about Belarus. I didn't want the people to sit in the cinema chairs and to look at the screen and to think, oh, okay, this is happening in Belarus. That's a huge strategy and everything. But here in Western Europe, everything is fine. Or like here in the Europe, we don't have that problems. Everything is fine. So the people there, they have this problem, but not us. So that's why I wanted, for example, also this instructor to look in, into the camera sometimes and to address the viewer with his eyes. And that's why I think the room and this place in Berlin right here, right now is so important because this is all connected. People in Berlin have something to do with what's happening in Belarus. It's all connected right now. And um, it's also like this war in Ukraine. It's a huge strategy and it's not only about Ukraine, you know. It's important to see this and to think it's important to, to understand this. And that's why I think the room in the middle of Berlin is, is such an important place instead of, let's say, neutral studio. Absolutely. It really implicates us, the audience, in these events because if we can't identify with what's happening over there in Belarus or Ukraine or wherever, we recognize this apartment. This could be our apartment. And so when these events come inside this space that we identify with, it kind of implicates us in these events. So it's very Thank effective. You. Thank you. The way the torture is depicted, it's like a kind of kabuki theater, I would say. The guy in the balaclava, you call him an instructor, which is interesting, wields a nasty looking baton. But when he uses it against the prisoners, he generally does so with a kind of balletic tapping motion. The violence is ritualized and heavily choreographed. Obviously, this is partly practical. You weren't going to have this performer, this actor actually hurt people. But there's more to it than that, of course. While, quote unquote, real violence would have made us recoil, there's something about the controlled robot-like movements that are, for me at least, even more chilling and disturbing. Can you talk about why you depicted the acts of torture the way you did? You mean why they are smooth and not heavy, like to put it this way, like like rather... Yes. For me, I think it has two reasons. First, look, when I read this 200 interviews, in the film, in the end of the film, what we hear and what we see, it's like 60 or 70% of the brutality what happened there. Because what people described in those interviews were like, Walls and floors covered with blood, teeth which were kicked out. I don't know, there were two or three cases of rape with, with a baton. 
and so on. There were people like who, yeah, well, not going, but I understood that humans and me included, definitely, if you hear or see extreme violence, I think you tend to protect yourself emotionally and say like, okay, this is too much. I cannot watch or read it anymore. I need a break or I just watch this film till the end and then I go out and try not to think about that. And this is exactly what I didn't want for this film to happen. I didn't want people to see it and to say, okay, this is too much. I'm going out of the cinema. So we thought about it and, and, and we understood that, okay, we have to make it rather non-violent to maybe help the audience understand that there are some people in some countries like Belarus, where it's a job, the daily job to torture people and to think about how to treat demonstrators to break their will. I mean, this is the most frightening idea, you know? So this is the first reason. The second reason I think I didn't want to make this film hysterical one or very emotional one, because although my emotions about all these events were extremely strong, I realized that the problem is that the dictator and all his, I don't know, police officers and so on, they all said there is no violence. It's all fake. Everything what these people tell, it's they're all paid by the West. So there, there was no violence in this prison. There was even in the state TV, <laughs> they were like staged. The prosecutor of Minsk went into the prison with a camera behind him, with a camera team behind him. And he asked the people sitting there in the cells, this beat men like, hey, did somebody beat you or something? And they said, no, 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 nobody. They, they treated us really well. It's like in a comedy, you know, but it's happened really like this. So I understood we need to do like a forensic study that in a case, hypothetically, if there will be a court or like a judge and this Lukashenko will sit on a bench that we can say, look, we know exactly what you did to these people, to the 7,000 people you arrested in three days and many other thousands which are still are arrested now. So these are two reasons why we understood we needed to make it like a forensic study. And to add to the instructor, the last sentence, the interesting thing, it, it was not an actor, it was a professional uh, MMA fighter instructor. So that's why I maybe called him instructor. He also trained some special force teams in Germany. And as I explained him this techniques of torture, he said he knows it from this anti-terror trainings for this special forces. So it's not so unusual what this policeman did to the prisoners. This was somebody trained in martial arts, very experienced in martial arts, as well as special forces training himself. Yeah. How did you work with him on the sort of the choreography? Since I had this idea in mind that we have to do it really like slow and smooth. And as a handbook, the idea was we should show it to the new recruits of this police. We should show them how they have to deal with the demonstrators. And as this was clear to me, we made a casting with several guys and martial arts trainers. And I had this idea how to, I watched some first aid videos, you know, like this training videos, how you train also in karate or in martial arts, you do everything very slow for the beginners. So producer and me, we understood, okay, this handbook is a beginner course for the new recruits. And from that on, it was really simple. Like I showed them what I have in mind. And at some point they corrected me and said, okay, I would do it maybe like rather this way and cross the legs. And that was actually a fun part is castings and talking about it together. And they actually added something to it because they brought the experience. There are some moments, 
sort of unbelievably of a humor, almost absurdity, such as when the prisoners are forced to do karaoke in the police transport truck. These feel like these could be scenes, you know, out of a Michael Haneke film, like Funny Games or something like Mm. that. Why do you think the special police have such tactics in their quote unquote handbook? Why not just torture people? I think it's a really good question. I really thought about it a lot too, to be honest, as I read this protocols, I also thought like, why they have to go this far and why they don't just torture and then go home or leave it, you know? I think it's just, first, they want to humiliate people and to show them who the boss is. And I think a lot of these policemen are pretty young. They're like in their 20s and they retire at 40. And from then on, they're like have a financially saved life after that or like pension. I think they just they just really enjoyed humiliating people. It's kind of simple like this. And I think they are told by their officers, like, do with them whatever you want and treat them like animals or wars. And they want to destroy your country and they are all paid. And look what they did to Ukraine at Maidan Revolution. And they want to do to our country the same and so on. So they're like pretty brainwashed. And I think also like singing the songs, singing the national anthem of Belarus, but not the real one, but the Lukashenko's one. Yeah, it's domination tactics. It's like psychological torture. Like we force you to love us by any means. It's actually what Putin is doing now also in Ukraine. You know, when he said like to Zelensky before the war in the winter, he said this uh, saying where I was really like really shocked because he said like, rather you like it or not, my dear, you have to bear it, you know? And it's, I don't know if I translate it right in English, but he says, rather you like it or not, but you have to do it. And it's, it's really sounds in Russians, it sounds like a rapist. So rather you love me or not, I'm going to take you. And it's similar logics. Rather you like me or not, people of Belarus, I will take you and I will torture you and I will make you sing my national anthem. period. Yeah, in some ways, the humiliation is almost harder to take than the other acts of torture. And I, I don't know why that is it's some deep human exactly, yes. response. Yeah. We should probably take a second for people who don't know anything about the contemporary history of Belarus or Lukashenko and just have you in a nutshell, just very briefly tell us who is Alexander Lukashenko and describe his grip on power in the country. He came into power 1996. He was elected because he was pretty populist and people were not really satisfied after the collapse of the Soviet Union. People were not really satisfied with this new form of capitalism in Belarus. And he said, okay, I'm going to make everything come back to normal again. And a lot of people voted for him indeed. And a lot of like people, and at the younger age, also, for example, my parents, I remember it really well. Like my parents and their friends, they said like, they were laughing about him because they said, oh, look at him. He cannot even talk. Oh, I have a siren here. I don't know. Do you hear it? They're coming to take you away, Pavel. We hear a siren. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The now I went police. too far. Now I went too far. You see, they, they reach everywhere. But I think it will be over now. It's from the fire station. So my parents and their friends, they were making fun of him, you know. It's interesting because as Trump was elected and a lot of people made fun of him, 
it really reminded me of Lukashenko's election. And a lot of pe- people in Belarus at that time said mm. he would stay in power like for four years here, yeah, and then he would be reelected because he's really not well educated. He cannot even speak Russian really, like he has a st- very strong accent and uh, forget about him. We will have a next guy. But then, of course, he was pretty ruthless and he eliminated pretty fast all the extreme political concurrents, killed them, and then gripped the power. And then from 2001 on, step by step, he changed the society, you know. It's a long story, but it's not only that he took the courts and the press and the police, but he also changed the society a lot in terms of propaganda, you know, the education system and everything. So it was a really huge surprise in August 2020 that so many people actually went on the streets because a lot were saying that it's all in Belarus right now. Nobody cares about politics anymore. But this thing is what is also very tragic in Russia and Belarus right now. Since these regimes are in power so long, over 20 years, it's really hard to change now something. People sometimes compare Russia to Ukraine and say, okay, why Russians does not go on the street and demonstrate against the war, like Ukrainians did it in 2014 on Maidan. But you know, in Ukraine is one of the post-Soviet republics where it had the most changes in presidents. While in Russia, there were only like two presidents de facto, and in Belarus, only one. So when you consolidate the power in 20 years, the army, the special police and everything, like. I think Lukashenko, he would even shoot at demonstrators. There is like no sense that he will give his power away. Yeah, he's going to be there as long as he possibly can be as president. Exactly, yeah. Let's talk about some of the formal elements in the film. The color palette, it's very muted, basically whites, blues, blacks, and grays. And the props are minimal. We see liters of water. We see a spare toilet in the middle of the room at one point. What was the key to unlocking your production design props and just overall approach? We were actually a team of four, like producer, production designer, DOP, and me, because at that point I didn't have the editor. But four of us, we were thinking about the visualization of the film. And it was really clear to us that we obviously cannot do it like one-to-one. We just cannot illustrate what is happening on the interview level, what people are telling us, but there has to be a visual break to it. So what we did is like asking ourselves for associations of the feeling rather of some torture element or anything. For example, as we talked about this one scene where people telling that they were recorded on the video by the special police. The DOP said, for example, I had an idea to have this, not closet, but where in the police station or for example, in this uh, movies where you have folders, where you have files of people and it's like a metal box and there you have all these files. And then the DOP said, but wouldn't they have it on the hard drives? And then we had this idea with the hard drives. So we started looking for hard drives who look most cinematically and this with this red dot and everything like towers and which are black. So, so this is an, is an example of where we have this black puppet because I was thinking a lot like, okay, how should we visualize this part of people being beaten or how they were be- beaten? It was obvious that we cannot only show it on one of these actors because I also wanted the audience to see the, how strong this beating square. So we came up with this puppet. 
to clarify for people, the scene Pavel's describing is one where the instructor is beating this mannequin-like structure or like a the torso of a mannequin or a dummy and really wailing on it. Yeah, because at one point we wanted to show how strong those beatings were. Also the animations were the idea that how should we visualize that so many people were in one room and it was Corona, obviously, so we could not put so many people in one room and it's also hard to find them. So we came up with with this idea of animations because it's also like in a textbook and we watched a lot of textbooks from school, from physics and everything. How do they, like real handbooks, how do they show something, instructions, manuals for using something and so on. In the end, we realized, okay, the film starts with this, or the real handbook starts with this instructor wearing the black mask and he's guiding us through the film until the half somewhere. And after this half, he leaves us because as we were finding associations, we realized, okay, we don't need him anymore. And this is how we try to do the switch. Okay, we stick only with, and we only trust now the objects. We go away from the instructor and we let handbook evolve to rather associational movie. And also, for example, this is scene of a bed. This is maybe a good example how also we proceeded. There's a scene where we have a wet bed and it is a passage where the prisoners tell us that sometimes the door opens and the special police force put a bucket of water into the cell, into the prison cell. And there one prisoner said like, you had two options to sleep in a wet, uh, on the floor or like to stand. And so we had this association, how would it feel to sleep in a wet bed, in a normal wet bed? So we put a wet bed in the middle of a room. Yeah, there's a very effective strategies that I think do imbue these objects with the weight of what's being done to people who would normally just use these objects, whether it's water or toilet or a bed in just a very normal everyday way. And they take on a kind of sinister aspect. Near the end of the film, we hear some stories of how, in spite of the relentless torture, the prisoners were able to find some measure of comfort in certain situations where through their own acts of kindness or acts of kindness from others outside the prison, they could come to the aid of their fellow prisoners. In these moments, you show us a kind of golden light coming in through the window, filtered through a gently swaying curtain. I felt like in those moments, you were showing us a kind of alternative handbook, one for Mm. the prisoners who, in spite of having been stripped of almost total control of their situation, could still find small ways to hold on to their core humanity by helping others. As you were reading these testimonials and interviews, how strongly did these moments of hope and caring speak to you? Indeed, these were very emotional moments. You're totally right. Like when I was reading it, when people described how they tried to help each other, how they really tried to support each other. Like literally I was crying because against this darkness, against this like unbearable darkness, which is actually too strong, where you have no hope, where treated like an animal, there is this light of human soul and human support. And it sounds maybe like really epic right now, but it's touched me immensely because people, for example, they get this bottle of water for one liter for 20 people. And they all managed to share it. Everyone took just a little, just a little sip of it. People who only had like t-shirts and shorts, they were like covered by other people to warm them up and so on and so on. For me, as I read it first, it was clear from the beginning, this has to be in a film because this hope has to be in a film because otherwise 
because I think in this hope, hope it's kind of the demonstrators and the protesters, they kept their dignity, you know, and they kept the power. And this scene is actually what's making them heroes, like real heroes, because even though they were treated so badly and so rough, they did not let them break by the system. They stayed human beings and they stayed generous to each other and helpful to each other. And in that aspect, they succeeded against the system which wanted to make them crawl like animals and behave like animals in fear and acting hard on each other. In that point, they survived. That's really touched me. And that's why it, it had to be there in the end. Yeah, it's very powerful. I think I noticed your name in the credits as being one of the, quote, students in the film. Is that the case? Were you in the film? Yeah. You mean if I appear in the film? Yeah, I lie on the floor in the scene where people are stapled over each other by this instructor. So I, you're the one on the bottom of the pile? Exactly. I'm, I'm lying on the bottom and then the others lie on me. Yeah. And, and what was that like for you to uh, experience that situation as both, quote unquote, an actor and someone reenacting this act of torture and also as the director in the same moment? Well, actually, I could not really understand how the people made it on this because if you have four people lying on you, it, it's a pretty weight. During shooting this scene, we <laughs> had some fun because it was kind of interesting to, to lie over each other. It's bizarre. It's bizarre, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. For example, when uh, I was lying there and our DOP, Jonas, I had to do some close-ups of the body parts after the long shot. We had to stay like this. And he said, okay, Pavel, look, I'm going to do some examples. I'm going to shoot some examples and then I show it to you. And then you say what you want. And then I shoot them again with a tripod. <laughs> so we were lying there like for 10 minutes or something while he was looking for different angles. And I was like, Jonas, okay, hurry up now. <laughs> like we are, we are lying here, you know, like with all the people on me. But then he found something and... Then I said, okay, this is that, and then we did it again. But what is interesting that the producer, me, and the DOP, and also the production designer, Frederica, before shooting, long before shooting, as we were testing out the room, if it's good for shooting or not, we tried, all of us, we tried all these different stations. Like, for example, this position where your head is on the floor and your knees are on the floor, and you have to stand like this for hours. Uh, I tried it for five minutes and I was already like having strong headaches and so on. But it was important for us to try all of this position to understand what it's doing to your body, to understand the choreography much better, you know. It was important also for me because then I could tell the instructor, please touch his head and show, for example, for the audience that the blood is streaming from the back to the head and that there is a lot of pressure in your head when you're lying like this. Or for example, I was lying on the floor with a head like that. And then I realized, oh, okay, your neck is getting stiff. So I was able in the choreography to show the instructor, can you touch the neck? And to show the audience that this is the pressure point, the neck, for example, and so on and so on. It was important for, I think, for the whole team, for the core team, to have a feeling what this torture is doing to your body. So last question, after watching this film, let's say we're back in our own apartments and we're thinking about, you know, the system in Belarus perpetrated by Lukashenko and his regime. And we're thinking, you know, okay, I'm back here. I've seen this film. 
I kind of know what's happening. I have a sense of what's happening in Belarus now, but you know, what can be done both inside Belarus and outside to oppose the regime and this system? It's a good question. It's a huge one. Unfortunately, I think now it's kind of too late, as I said before, because when you have these dictators so long in power, it's really hard to move them by any peaceful means. I think we see now that sanctions have an effect on Putin because like I, I read every day about what is happening there and I have this feeling that maybe going to work. And Lukashenko is completely depending on Putin. It's, he's not a player himself. So if Putin regime falls, then Lukashenko falls. If Putin stays in power, Lukashenko stays in power. But I think it's like 10, maybe 20 years ago that we could have this discussion how to deal with Putin and Lukashenko. And now it's unfortunately a bit too late. Maybe the sanctions somehow will work. I think and I'm pretty sure that he cannot or both of them cannot win this war against Ukraine. And I think this war will be defeating both of them, hopefully both of those regimes. And unfortunately, I think now Russia is on this. It's going straight ahead. How do you say it? There are no more crossing lines. It's only one way of this dictatorship. And in the end, it will be the collapse of the whole federation. Or maybe, I don't know, a bigger war like a civil war in, in Russia or something like this. Or there will be a regime change kind of revolution, what's happened, for example, with Soviet Union, why not? Nobody expected that Soviet Union can collapse like, you know, in a week. And the reason for that was the war in Afghanistan. Like one of the main reasons for that was also the war in Afghanistan. So now it's only this major event which can transform and release these countries from these post-dictatorships. I hope it will be without much blood and it will be a rather peaceful like, for example, the collapse of the Soviet Union, it was rather peaceful collapse and then a hard collapse, but eh, who knows? Like in the end, how I said, it's not much what you can do. I hope sanctions will work and I think they can be effective. And I think Putin is really afraid of them and especially the oil embargo. And it's now up to European Union if they can agree on that or not. But this, I think, could be an effective way. I would say, aside from regime change, which is a huge thing, one small thing, but important thing that you've done is you have shined a light on what goes on in these secret rooms, in these spaces where there is very little light. And through these testimonials, you have been able to show not only what goes on, but the strength of individual people who find themselves in these situations. And there is a small glimmer of hope and there's always humanity. And so I want to congratulate you on your incredible film and thank you for being with us today. And I wish you all the best in terms of your future work and career. I can't wait to see what is next for you. Thank you very much for this conversation. And yes, all the best for you too. And hopefully the next film will be on a more, let's say, peaceful topic. Yes. If you can tell us what's up next for you. That's a good question, actually, because I've been thinking about it this morning. But I did some research in the last two months for another project. But then it turned out that it would be too difficult as a next project. I'm in a master's at my film university, Babelsberg. And I think it will be a short film because I don't feel ready for a feature film because I have a feeling that 
uh, a long format is completely different discipline. You know, it's a different weight class. I rather do a short again and then see where it takes me from there. Great. Do you have a recommendation for a documentary short that people should see? Indeed, what came into my mind is a short film, 89 millimeters from Europe, because I was thinking like how to find a short documentary, which you can find online because it's rather difficult. And then it came to my mind that this film is on YouTube. It's from 1993 by Polish filmmaker Marcel Lozinski. And you really can find it on YouTube if you type in 89 millimeters from Europe. And it's a black uh, white movie, only 11 minutes long. But I think for all documentary lovers, it's a must see. We'll definitely enjoy it. Great. Thank you. I'll check that out for sure. Thanks so much, Pavel. Take care. Appreciate it. Yep. Thank you, Ken.